Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we chatted about the Christian right in fiction, learned about a puppet cabaret, and debuted the pocket guide to hell. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for November 20th, 2020. I-94 spoke to Catherine Lacey, author of Pew, out now from Farrar, Strauss, and Giroux. Lacey discussed her background as a church-going child in Mississippi, how the urge to help others sometimes conceals selfishness, and why the unknown makes us so uncomfortable. I-94, Lumpen Radio's books and literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. Catherine, welcome this morning. Thanks for joining us. Hi, thanks for having me. I was writing Pew for a while in this kind of unusual for me fashion where I wrote it really intense. I, I wrote the first draft um, very quickly for me, just like over a period of um, um, maybe two months or something. Um, and But then I, I wasn't completely right. I just there was something wrong about it, but I wasn't sure what. So I put it away for a while and then I would come back to it. And I was sort of in this sort of back and forth, um, working on it really intensely and then being away from it completely uh, and, and rewriting like you know, almost all of it every time. Um, and it was, I was in a break when I heard, I, I read that story again for the first time and I, um, I had read it somehow like in high school or something and I, it, I guess it had stayed in the back of my mind, but I hadn't really been thinking about it. And when I read that story, I sort of realized that it was it was a kind of key for me to figure out why the book wasn't working for me, why I was going through these drafts in the way that I was. Um, not that it was like not in terms of plot, like it's not like Pew is not like that child, and it's 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 not like a a one to one sort of um, relationship between the effect that the story had on me and the effect that it had on the book, the the, the process of writing the book, but. There was just something. There was something in it um, at the end of that story. Um, uh, they learn this child that's being tortured, that they they leave a kind of perfect happiness um, because they can't bear it to cause the suffering of of this one person. Um, and you don't know where they go. Like that, that, that's where the story ends. I mean, it's like a two two or three page story or something, but it ends. It ends in this um, this note of we don't know where those people go when they leave this town, and I was just sort of interested in um, in that gesture. It, it 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 kind of helped me click a bunch of things, so that's why I put that epigraph there. And also, I just wanted to you know, an epigraph is a place where you can direct people's attention to um, you know basically whatever whatever writer or, or story or book you want. And I thought more people should be reading Le Guin, and that's a good place to start. Jamie pointed that I was talking to him about the ending of the book, which I don't want to go into because I don't want to have any spoilers. But, um, you know, and Jamie's like, well, read the uh, the Le Guin story. And I, I read it after I read the book. And uh, it was it was interesting because when I was actually when I was reading Pew, I had this like sense of foreboding. And, and what I compared it to is when I read The Lottery for the first time by Shirley Jackson, because I knew I just had this like uns- it was um, it was very unsettling because when as you're going through and the characters that Pew interacts with um, in telling their secrets and also just their behavior and, and mannerisms and things that I just had this like kind of dark unsettling feeling throughout the book and you know kudos to you because if you're able to do that with your writing I think that's 
um, pretty outstanding. And I, I, I wanted to say too, you know, we all loved your book and that's not, always, oh, thank you. Not, it's not always the case, but, um, I, I hadn't read you before and I, I'd read a bunch of, I read a review in the LA review of books and, and, uh, and I didn't know you lived in Chicago. We did our research, but I did want to say, you know, I, I wanted to talk about was the, that sense of foreboding that I felt when I was, uh, Reading the book, did you have that when you were writing, and was that intentional, or is that just how it came out? Um, I for me, intention is a sort of sticky thing when it comes to writing because I find that if I intend something, then that's not what happens. Um, but I do think over over the course of revision, you sort of have more time to sort of turn up or turn down a kind of dial. But I don't think, I think that, you know, from the very beginning I had this premise of um, this this feeling like there was this person who didn't have a history and no one, people would look at them and not be able to know uh, anything about them. And of course that's not possible. You know, if we're human beings, we walk around, we see a person we can tell, you know, something about how old they are, what color their skin is, maybe where they're from, maybe their gender, you know, you can usually get some details out of a person and that those details sort of suggest a history. Um, and I just had this feeling of well, what would it be like to be a human and for that history to not be apparent in the way that you appeared to others? Or what would it, what would it mean to encounter somebody whose, whose history was not apparent in their um, physicality? Um, and I guess, I guess that, I mean, that question just sort of, that, that, that's the whole question of the book that, I mean, of course, I, I didn't resolve it because it can't be resolved because it, you know, it's just not a resolvable question. So for me, that's the sort of thing that I like to write about, or I like to write into, um, or answers, uh, questions that I can't answer. And there was, um, there... so I, yeah, so I guess maybe that leads into a sense of foreboding. Yeah. And there was, um, well, and there was a lot of assumptions made by the townspeople, I, I, for lack of a better way to describe it. Mm -hmm. and, and when I was, sometimes when I was reading those assumptions and then um, there was one confession in particular that involved a river and drowning. And uh, that, mm -hmm. when I read that, I was just like, oh no, what's, you know, what's going to happen down the road? So. <laughs> I think maybe, I, I mean, I was born in the eighties in Mississippi and that's its own sort of horror show if you're a certain kind of person and so maybe it's more of a you know 80s southern gothic horror if that, that genre doesn't really exist in film or books except for maybe this one now um but that, i mean that's the sort of genre that uh i experienced my you know first 15 years of life and so um yeah i think when i was first uh like um, I guess well, when I was in my early 20s and sort of getting more serious about writing, uh, the first thing I tried to write was a book basically about um, being like an extremely fundamentalist child. I wasn't really, my family wasn't really like a, my family, but um, I was raised in church for many, many hours uh, a week, but I sort of took to it in my own sort of dogmatic way. and. Um, you know, like scours the Bible for like how to behave. And I mean, and, and you know, I didn't realize that that was unusual until I moved to New York, that not everybody had a kind of like obsessively moral childhood. Um, and, uh, 
Yeah, but it, it didn't really work. That the that book didn't really end up working partially because I didn't really want to be a character in it, and I didn't really feel like I didn't really feel like my experience with religion in the South was important. It was more um, the atmosphere of of the place that I grew up in, sort of um, the 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 feeling of being religious was more what I wanted to convey, and not something that was specific to me that wasn't like, you know, I wasn't trying to, um, I didn't want to, I just didn't want to be the character in the story. And so I think, um, you know, I put that book aside. It wasn't, it, it wasn't the thing for me to be doing at that time. And I think I didn't realize until I was done with this, that basically that it's, it's this kind of inverted memoir where there's no, there's no um, personal information necessarily about like me or my childhood in there or my family or anything like that. But there is a kind of, um, uh, that feeling, that I guess, that I was trying to convey ended up sort of getting in there. Stephen squinted for a moment, then began. The Forgiveness Festival. Well, there's a very long story about how it came to be, and I'm afraid I'm not the right person to tell all the history about it. But what I can say is that the festival is what sets our community apart from other communities in the area. It is one of the ways we've decided to actively reconcile with our past, unite both sides of our community, and acknowledge that everyone, every single one of us, everyone is born broken. That's what we believe, you know. That's a core part of Christianity. That we're all broken without God. And a few years back, all the preachers in the town got together for a meeting because it was starting to feel like the whole country was particularly angry, and people were always accusing each other. And whole groups of people start blaming whole other groups of people for their problems, Blacks and immigrants, for instance, and women, of course. But I'll admit that, in some ways, it goes in the other direction, too, I suppose. Everybody really blames everybody and never blames themselves. Well, our preachers decided this had gone on long enough, so they prayed about it and they read the Bible about it, and a peculiar thing happened, which is that God spoke to all our preachers, all at once. Hilda muttered something to herself, but Stephen didn't notice and kept talking. And what he told them was to have a special day every year for everyone to confess all their sins together out loud so that we all understand we're all sinful, that we're all broken. There's no use in blaming anyone else for anyone's trouble. Of course, people still want their privacy, so there's blindfolds and curtains that are set up. It's very beautiful, Hilda said, even with the blindfolds. You feel how beautiful it is. Yes, Stephen said, and it's moving to see the community come together. Well, almost. They've always been invited. We invite them every year. And Dr. Corbin, he was part of the group that put it all together anyway. But he couldn't convince his own church to come. That's what I was told anyway. Well, I mean, I can understand why. It's just that... Anyway, that's neither here nor there, Stephen said. Point is, Dr. Corbin is going to bring you to the festival on Saturday so you can see for yourself what it is and what our most important values are. Right. And there are some things you might see at the festival or on the way that we decided it would be better for you to know about ahead of time. So it doesn't startle you, Hilda said. On the way to the festival, you may see a lot of policemen in the streets. The guns are symbolic, Hilda seemed to recite from somewhere. They're symbolic of the power of God and of the power of the gifts he's given to us. And also, they're just there to make sure that no one gets hurt.
Sharon Hoyer spoke with Julia Miller and Ben Kaufman of Manual Cinema about their new production of A Christmas Carol, as well as Mike Olian of Rough House Theatre Company about Nasty, Brutish, and Short, a puppet cabaret at Lynx Hall. How do puppets speak to this time in our history? Find out. Means of Production airs every Friday at 9 a.m. I was wondering if you could first describe just what it is that Manual Cinema does. Yeah, we um, yeah we describe ourselves as sort of like a cinematic shadow puppet company. At least that's like the work we started in, where we were creating theatrical shows that combined um, shadow puppetry, where we use overhead projectors, uh, live actors in silhouette, and hundreds of paper puppets that we project onto a shadow screen that then is projected onto a much larger screen above the stage, like the kind of like a scale of a movie screen and then all of that is happening below the shows being made below so you can see the final image you can see all the actors running around and the puppeteers and then there's also a live band on stage that is creating an original performing an original score as well as cueing sound design so that's where we started in this sort of interactive cinematic shadow puppetry world and then as we kept making work we started to delve more into video animation and film scoring and so now we also have a studio arm that works in that creates um, animations for video and film as well that's amazing and and so can you give me a little background just a brief history on how this company evolved sure yeah for sure um So uh, like Julia said, we started in 2010. And when we started, it was really um, an organic kind of thing. It was really, you know, a bunch of young artists in Chicago doing um, theater and music and performance. And we kind of got together through um, various channels, just like mutual friends. And um, uh, Julia and Sarah had worked together uh, previously. And we really started with short early version of a show that would become Lula Del Rey. And we called it the Ballad of Lula Del Rey. Um, And we did that for um, a really small like storefront puppetry um, festival, the Puppeteers Festival. That show was was only one overhead projector. So now we make shows with multiple overhead projectors, uh, which allows for like all kinds of cinematic kind of cuts and edits and layers Um, but at the beginning it was just one overhead projector Um, so sort of you were seeing one image at a time and the music was also all kind of like um, pre-recorded and and cued Mm. and that was kind of the the very first thing we did we really enjoyed making it and the five of us kind of clicked in terms of just like uh, being um, I don't know, on the same page creatively and, and really liking working together. And we kind of just kept making stuff. So Yeah, we, we kind of um, modeled the, the, the company sort of after a band where we'd like come up with a new thing mm. and then try to perform that thing. And everything as far as like the structure of the company was around us creating work together. So we we sort of approached it as like the... The art we were making was sort of at the core of everything. And then as we had to get, um, we got different gigs or we got a gig with the city. So we needed to get a tax ID number. And so then, you know, and then we had to like incorporate, but it was always sort of, we never had it in mind that we would be like a, you know, eventually like an international tour company and puppet studio. Uh It was very much like project (laughs) by project. And each project we did, 
you know, we learned new tricks and new techniques and we're expanding the form and the visual and sonic style and sort of getting new tricks in our pockets. Um, and then we also started uh, touring after a couple of years. Um, also, which because the work is nonverbal, ended up um, kind of catapulting us into like an international touring market, which was also um, pretty wild. So we've been able to tour the work a lot as well because um, most of the shows don't really have dialogue or text in them. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just an amazing thing to see. Um, unlike any other theater I've ever seen, even though all of the pieces of it are so familiar. Mm. And and I liked how you described that you're, you think of yourselves as a band, because I was going to ask um, about your collaborative process. Um, you're all collaborators. You're all listed as artistic directors. And um, I was a little bit curious about how that collaborative process works. Yeah, so the five artistic directors are the five of us that sort of created this first project, the Ballad of Lula Del Rey that Ben was talking about. Mm -hmm. And we all have, you know, different admin duties to help, like, run the business side of the company. And then we also have all different arts backgrounds and, like, creative backgrounds and interests. So um, Sarah, Drew, and I came from a theater background and also... Um, Drew was a dramaturg at Court Theater. Sarah um, was like an acrobat who also did fight choreography and like like narrative theory. And um, I came from like a, also a theater and performance background. And then Ben and Kyle came from like music and um, composition backgrounds. Um, so I feel like the five of us all have sort of different access points, um, which is great because it kind of uh, we all have different sort of things to offer as part of the creative process. Um, but yeah, we all work pretty collaboratively on the shows. Usually someone sort of presents like the first nugget of an idea. And each project is different in that um, sometimes it'll be written collaboratively or sometimes it'll be uh, a lead writer and we'll have many, you know, story summits, we call them, or like story meetings where we'll like sort of pick things apart and and work on the outline together um and then the visual team will sometimes usually it's um well actually it depends sometimes it's more visual driven and that will create a storyboard that then the music that responds to but we've also created projects where there's a story and a score first like the end of tv um which is a song cycle mm. and then we'll create the visuals based on the narrative and the music so each project sort of has a different combination of of how we're approaching it. Sometimes a lot of those things are happening together at the same time, just based on the production schedule. But we, you know, we've, yeah, we've gotten better at sort of, oh, sorry, go ahead. Um, yeah, I just wanted to say that a couple of things. Like one is that I think without totally realizing it, we've taken a lot of, um, a lot of our sort of process from um, like the way films and, and TV are collaborative. Um, so, you know, there's these different departments, um, there's music and sound, there's, um, there's puppetry and visuals, there's writing, there's technical stuff. And so there's all these, these different sort of groups with the same goal. Um, and so each kind of show is, uh, maybe a little bit different, um, in terms of how those departments are kind of put together. But yeah, I feel like that's something we've, um, sort of taken from from the collaborative ethos of film. 
uh, you know, a lot of the shows, the writing of them are a little bit like a writer's room um, that you might see in, in like TV. Mm-hmm. So there might be, you know, one or two people who are kind of like the keepers of the story, but often all five of us are contributing to the storytelling and the writing. And the other thing to say is just that part of our kind of growth as a company is just trying new ways of working and different mm-hmm. processes. Um, and that can be like a, a reason to start working on something in and of itself. So uh, like Julia mentioned, our show, The End of TV, which was like a song cycle. Um, that was just like sort of from the get go, something that we wanted to play with. Um, we had done, you know, uh, a number of shows up to that point where Kyle and I were more like scoring a, a film or that's how we thought of it, um, which we love doing. Um, but we also were like, well, we haven't really done like a uh, like an album of songs that might be that might be put together with visuals. Mm-hmm. So um, so like a new process can be as exciting as a new you know story idea. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. I, I was I was also going to ask, you know, because of the materials you're working with, you're thinking of things in cinematic terms. It sounds like you're performing them in a live mm-hmm. theater setting. You're working with one of the most ancient forms of storytelling with shadow puppetry um and then also with this now obsolete technology of overhead projectors <laughs> from the mid-20th century yeah you know so you're, it's so inventive and i imagine um, look- yeah yeah can, can you talk about that a little bit like you know it sounds like even the the medium inspires what happens and it and it and it all feeds on itself like how do you approach creating what happens when you're finding entirely new ways to solve these problems of, of how to make an image live uh, in the way that you want. Yeah. yeah. I'm so glad you mentioned problem solving because I feel like that's like the visual team's job is to just like solve problems because we're working in such a limited format. And we've definitely pushed it in a lot of different directions. Like each show we make sort of iterates on like the foundation of the shadow puppetry the company started within, but now is expanding into more like cinematic techniques that we're experimenting with as like on stage that can happen in real time. Like we'll have a fixed camera and we'll whoosh actors and like, you know, illustrated puppets or different set pieces around it to like simulate camera movement or we'll have additional sites outside of the shadow puppetry that have like a green screen for when we're going into showing what a character is watching on TV, like the end of TV. So we, our whole thing is like we work within these limitations because the overhead projectors are like, you know, very specific at what they do well. Um, And, you know, for a touring company, everything has to be able to fit into a box eventually Mm. to be able to go on a plane and it's like a set number of boxes. So I just feel like we were were sort of used to working into limits in a limited manner. And so we're always trying to push against the medium and see um, where it can go next. And we've definitely like failed at that. Like in one of the earlier versions of Mementos Mori, which is a show, our first show that sort of had like multiple protagonists that we follow. Um, we wrote a character who was a news game show host, um, which in a silent movie, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. There's a lot of like, thought that went into it but then when we started to stage it we were like he has to we can't he can't talk like no one else is talking and then we were we had made all this like amazing b-roll like we made up like a fake game show that he hosted and so we really tried to see if 
we could, you know, we were like, let's see if we could do it. And then it was like, no, this doesn't make sense. Size matters, size matters. Cliff Kyle Seismankowski. Fresh towel? Oh, uh, yes. Thank you. Are you having a good night? I'm just on a date with a guy who makes me so nervous. Don't be. You look great. You want a cigarette? Calm me down a little? I don't smoke. Well, how about something stronger? What? Yeah, most of this mouthwash is like 60 proof. Um, I think I'm probably good. Spritz of perfume? You don't want him smelling this flop sweat you got going on. No, thank you. What, what the? Oh, wow. That's a nice scent. Thank you. It was not cheap. Mm-hmm. Well, see ya. Oh, it was my mother's favorite. I bought it to see if she would respond to anything from the coma. Oh my god. Did it work? You know, we're, uh, we're taking it one day at a time. You poor dear. Here. Thank you so much, Miss. Ah, Keith. You know, I, I didn't know your mom was dead or something. <laughs> well, if you see her, don't tell her I said that. She'd ah. kill me. What's going on, Kyle? When I said I wanted to see what you do for a living, I was hoping that maybe I'd be able to do a ride-along or shadow you or something. Well, you obviously can't come in here. You're a guy. Well, how about I take the men's room and diversify this stuff? Diversify? Who taught you that? Have you been reading Men's Health again? Ah, come on. Why don't you just set up shop outside between the bathrooms? You can get both dudes and dudettes. There is a level of personal service required for these fat donations. Right, but I got a bow tie. I gotta get something to eat, Kyle. Why don't you float the mop as we agree? I want to attend to the patrons of the bathroom. The mop and the out-of-service signs are in the utility closet over there. Five minutes to mop, five minutes to dry. Done. Welcome to the ladies' room. Here. Forget this. Time to diversify. Oh my gosh! Hello. Um, wrong bathroom. So sorry. Nope. By all means, this is the right bathroom. Uh, what are you doing in here? That's ah, okay. I'm the bathroom attendant. So when you're done washing your hands, you come over to me. I give you a piece of gum. I got a spray of cologne for you. I got some finger sandwiches. I mean, I even got some hummus. Look at the spread. Okay. Can you leave? Now you see, this is a gender-diversified bathroom. Uh, Yeah, so basically it- Okay, cool. uh, Hey, all right, I got my first customer. Get this ready here. Got the carrots. Hello there, El Capitan. Uh, yeah, no, I just just gotta use the sink. Having a rough night? (sighs) You you could say that. Oh, you're looking sharp there, Cap. Yeah, there's this girl I'm on on a date with, and I, I think I- like her and I'm trying to figure out how to tell her and I don't know what she's going to say. Take a minute, have a smoke, calm down. Yeah, yeah, thanks. I just need a minute. This will do it. Kyle, what are you doing? Why is the men's room out of service? This is a gender-diversified co-ed bathroom. This is not a good idea. Why are you so backwards thinking, Jess? Yeah. This particular toilet is not legally equipped for co-ed occupancy and I don't think we as extra-legal Restroom attendants, get to make that call. Is there a party out here? Yeah, grab a sandwich. L- Laura? James? Did, did you... That was you? I... You were talking about me? Uh, I think you're a babe. <laughs> I, I really like you. Ugh, 
Thank God there's plenty of places to barf in here. What a sappy moment. Let's get out of this bathroom. Thanks for the smoke. I can't believe it. Yeah, I know. We should have got a bigger tip. No, I can't believe that girl didn't wash her hands. This week on the Trump Diaries, thousands rallying in D.C. as Trump continues to stoke chaos, virus cases cascade with no aid in sight from D.C. All 50 states have now been called. Biden has 306 electoral votes. Republicans try to get those votes thrown out and send Trump electors to the Electoral College. And Trump continues to block the transition. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1394, November 13th. The United States topped more than 160,000 new coronavirus cases for the first time in a single day. America's death toll has now hit 245,000. President-elect Joe Biden's coronavirus task force said they do not believe he has the unilateral authority to issue a national lockdown, but Biden said he would ask governors to institute a nationwide mask mandate and would work with local authorities to try and build a national firebreak. Meanwhile, Trump continues to be largely absent. He has not met with his own coronavirus task force in several months. His legal challenges to Biden's win have been mostly dismissed. Trump continues to insist to aides that he beat Biden, and he asked advisors whether or not he could pressure Republican legislatures in key states to pick pro-Trump electors to steal the votes needed to change the math and give him a second term. Judges in Arizona, Michigan, and Pennsylvania rejected his claims of election fraud, saying Trump had not provided any evidence. The law firm leading the Trump campaign's efforts to challenge the results in Pennsylvania withdrew. Also, the leading white shoe firm, Jones Day, said they would not get involved in additional litigation in this election. That decision came after pressure from in-house lawyers worried about the effect of the litigation on American democracy. Trump also continued his string of tweeting, repeating a false report that a voting machine system, quote, deleted 2.7 million Trump votes nationwide. That is false. Trump has sent some 300 tweets this week alone. The Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency reported the presidential election in 2020 was, quote, the most secure in American history. The statement from state and federal election officials said they found, quote, no evidence that any voting system deleted or lost votes, changed votes, or was in any way compromised and acknowledged the, quote, many unfounded claims and opportunities for misinformation about the process of American elections. And the Trump campaign ended its, quote, voter fraud hotline after it was flooded with prank calls. That line went viral after several AM radio hosts and Hollywood comedians made and then posted prank calls to the hotline. Day 1395, November 14th. 16 federal prosecutors who had been assigned to monitor the 2020 election said they had not seen any credible evidence of voting fraud. The assistant U.S. attorneys then urged Attorney General William Barr to rescind his memo allowing investigators to pursue allegations of vote tabulation irregularities before results are certified, saying, quote, this policy change was not based in fact. Hate crimes in the United States rose to the highest level in more than a decade. The number of hate crime murders also hit a record high in 2019, with close to 8,000. White nationalist hate groups rose by 55% between 2017 and 2019. A federal judge has ruled that Chad Wolf is not serving lawfully as the acting Secretary of Homeland Security, and therefore his suspension of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals Program, or DACA, is invalid. In June, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled the Trump administration wrongly tried to shut down DACA protections. Wolf nonetheless suspended DACA on July 28th. 
Trump is now trying to get Wolf confirmed before Inauguration Day. The General Services Administration official who is blocking President-elect Biden's transition team from accessing government resources is looking for a new job. Emily Murphy, who is responsible for deciding when election results are clear enough to trigger a transition of power, recently sent a message to an associate asking about career opportunities in 2021. And TikTok was granted a 15-day extension to find an American buyer after the Trump administration failed to enforce its own deadline. Attorney General Barr was responsible for enforcing Trump's order. It is not clear why the administration did not enforce its initial deadline. Day 1396, November 15th. Several thousand supporters of Trump protested the election results and marched the Supreme Court this weekend in Washington. The so-called MAGA rally degenerated into fistfights. Police made at least 20 arrests, and one person is in serious condition after a stabbing. Trump stoked that rally by sending his motorcade through streets lined with supporters. He continues to refuse to concede the election to Biden, though he did tweet today that Biden had won. Trump followed that up by tweeting, quote, he won because the election was rigged. An hour later, he added in all caps, rigged election, we will win. He only won in the eyes of the fake news media. I concede nothing. We have a long way to go. This was a rigged election. Trump also continues to blame his loss on debunked conspiracy theories. Twitter has been placing warnings all over his Twitter feed. Alleged lawyer Rudy Giuliani is now peddling a theory that Dominion Voting Systems, the Colorado-based manufacturer of Georgia's voting machines, is a, quote, leftist company with ties to Venezuela, quote, and therefore China, that engineered thousands of Trump votes to be left out of the count. Giuliani has also repeatedly falsely claimed that officials spirited 100,000 mysterious ballots for Biden into the Michigan vote count leak in the wee hours of election night. Both of these claims are totally false. National Security Advisor Robert O'Brien promised a professional transition with the incoming Biden administration. Quote, if the Biden-Harris ticket is determined to be the winner, and obviously things look that way now, we'll have a very professional transition with the National Security Council, no doubt about it. A growing number of top Republicans have urged Trump to start an orderly transition of power. Trump has told friends he wants to start a direct-to-consumer digital streaming media company to take on Fox News. Former Liverpool football club owner Tom Hicks is said to be providing the funding possibly in tandem with Sinclair, Newsmax, or One American News Network. Day 1397, November 16th. Virus cases continue to rage out of control in America and states are now moving toward renewed lockdowns. A sweeping stay-at-home order went into effect in the city of Chicago. Nationally, we're seeing at least 170,000 cases a day and there is no ceiling in sight. The United States hit 11 million cases on Sunday. That is by far the most in the world. Moderna announced its COVID-19 vaccine was 94.5% effective in its latest trial. This is the second vaccine to show large-scale efficacy. The news comes a week after a similar shot developed by Pfizer and BioNTech said their candidate was more than 95% effective in interim analyses. Moderna's vaccine was co-developed with Dr. Anthony Fauci's institute. Trump subsequently tweeted, quote, for those great historians, please remember that these great discoveries, which will end the China plague, all took place on my watch. Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger said that he has come under pressure in recent days from fellow Republicans, including Senator Lindsey Graham. 
Raffensperger said Graham questioned the validity of legally cast absentee ballots in an effort to reverse Trump's narrow loss in that state. Raffensperger expressed exasperation over a string of baseless allegations coming from Trump and his allies about the integrity of the Georgia results. Raffensperger said that he and his wife, Trisha have received death threats, including a text to him that read, quote, you better not botch this recount. Your life depends on it. Raffensperger also called Representative Doug Collins, who is leading Trump's efforts in Georgia, a liar and a charlatan. Trump asked his aides last week about the possibility of striking Iran's nuclear sites in the final weeks of his presidency. Senior officials reportedly dissuaded the president from making the move, warning it could trigger a broader conflict. Trump also tweeted, quote, the fake recount going on in Georgia means nothing because they are not allowing signatures to be looked at and verified, break the unconstitutional consent degree. It is unclear exactly what he is talking about. All voter signatures actually have been looked at and were verified last month. Day 1398, November 17th. President-elect Biden warned of dire consequences if Trump and his administration continue to block his transition team on the coronavirus pandemic. Saying, quote, more people may die if we don't coordinate, the comments reflected growing frustration in Washington with an election loser who seems to have checked out of governance. Michigan Governor Gretchen Whitmer was threatened with violence by Dr. Scott Atlas, Trump's coronavirus advisor, after she announced she was ordering the shutdown of some businesses and halting in-person learning at high schools and colleges. Atlas tweeted, quote, the only way this stops is if people rise up, you get what you accept. Whitmer denounced Atlas's tweet, saying, quote, it was incredibly reckless. Dr. Anthony Fauci added he totally disagrees with Atlas. Whitmer, of course, was the focus of a right-wing plot to kidnap and kill her that was broken up by the FBI. Trump's team is now racing to sell leases in the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge as it races to open the pristine wilderness and lock in drilling rights before Biden takes office. The government also plans to auction off oil and gas rights to more than 383,000 acres of federal land in the lower 48 states in the next month. The Energy Department is also seeking to weaken energy efficiency requirements for showerheads as well as washers and dryers before Inauguration Day. It is expected that Biden will withdraw those leases and cancel the moves. And Trump suddenly announced the U.S. is to cut its number of troops in Afghanistan and Iraq by 2,500 people. Trump had previously warned he would be cutting the size of forces in those two countries. The cuts will take effect before Trump leaves office. The cuts fulfill a campaign promise made by Trump, but also a risk allowing both regions to tip back into the hands of extremists. And Republican leaders are increasingly alarmed about the party's ability to stave off Democratic challengers in Georgia's two Senate runoff elections. In a private call, Karl Rove described Trump as a political burden who was the loser of the 2020 election. Rove also warned the two Republican candidates that they would be outspent by Democrats and would not have enough cash reserves. Day 1399, November 18th. The Pennsylvania Supreme Court rejected the Trump campaign's claim that election observers were improperly denied access to watch ballot counting in the city of Philadelphia. The court noted that state law mandates observers be permitted to be, quote, in the room during ballot counting. The law does not set a minimum distance between them and the counting tables. 
in Detroit. Republicans were forced to climb down after refusing to certify vote totals in Michigan. It was a stunningly partisan move that would have potentially disenfranchised hundreds of thousands of voters from a predominantly black city of Detroit. After a stream of public backlash, the two Republican board members reversed their votes and agreed to certify. Republicans are now seeking to have state legislatures refuse the popular vote and instead send electors for Trump to the Electoral College. The head of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Senator Lindsey Graham, reportedly pressured Georgia's Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger to exclude ballots in that state's presidential recount. Raffensperger made the allegations to the Washington Post. His assistant subsequently confirmed Graham's request. Raffensperger has also reported receiving death threats. Graham tried to walk back those conversations. Rudy Giuliani appeared in federal court on behalf of the Trump campaign, claiming that Republican election observers weren't allowed to get close enough to the vote counting tables. Giuliani, who was representing a client inside the courtroom for the first time in nearly three decades, filled with his Twitter account, forgot which judge he was talking to, and threw around unsupported accusations about a nationwide conspiracy by Democrats to steal the election. Among such gems, Giuliani kneeled an opposing lawyer by calling him, quote, the man who was very angry with me, I forgot his name. He also mistook the judge for a federal judge in a separate Pennsylvania district who rejected a separate Trump campaign case. Quote, I was accused of not reading your opinion and that I did not understand it. He also didn't seem to know the meaning of certain words. Quote, I'm not sure I know what opacity means. It probably means you can see, right? U.S. District Judge Matthew Brand replied, it means you can't. Big words, Your Honor, Giuliani said. Notably, Giuliani, who has spent weeks making wild-eyed claims about fraud, did not argue that there was voter fraud in court, where such accusations would be perjury. Giuliani is also reportedly asked to be paid more than $20,000 a day, a fee that would place him above the nation's most elite lawyers. Aides for Trump reportedly pushed pause on that. Giuliani strenuously denied that report. Biden has told his aides that he's concerned Trump investigations will consume his presidency and further divide the nation. Biden, however, wants his Justice Department to function independently from the White House and said he would leave the decisions to investigate up to the Department of Justice. Biden reportedly, quote, just wants to move on from Trump. Facebook and Twitter's chief executives were grilled by Congress for the second time in three weeks. Simmering discomfort over the social media platforms has led to widespread suggestions that the protections they currently enjoy under a law known as Section 230 should be revoked. Facebook, in particular, was criticized for allowing a number of false posts about President-elect Joe Biden to circulate unchallenged. Trump abruptly fired the senior cybersecurity official responsible for securing the presidential election. Christopher Krebs had systematically and publicly undercut Trump's false claims that the presidency was stolen from him through illegal votes. Krebs, a former Microsoft executive, had in fact done a remarkable job protecting the vote, and his ouster drew bipartisan condemnation. Day 1400, November 19th. New claims for unemployment benefits in the United States rose to 742,000 last week. This is the first increase since early October. More than 21 million Americans are currently claiming some form of unemployment insurance. Trump demanded this morning that Pennsylvania state officials simply refuse to certify their results. The end game, according to the campaign legal advisor Jenna Ellis, is to enable Republican state lawmakers in a swing state, such as Michigan or Pennsylvania, to award their state's electoral college delegates to Trump, despite Biden's unassailable vote margins. Nationally, 250,000 people have now died from the coronavirus. Cities and states are now battening down, despite a seeming lack of attention from the federal government. 
Congress seems unable to discuss pandemic relief. In American cities, New York City's public school system is shut down. That closes the largest public school system in America. In Boston, the mayor told college students that if they go home for Thanksgiving, they should not come back. Three Republican senators have been sidelined by positive tests, including Chuck Grassley and Rick Scott. 80 members of Congress to date have tested positive. The Justice Department say they will execute three inmates on the federal death row in defiance of President-elect Biden, who says he will abolish the death penalty. Attorney General William Barr suddenly resumed carrying out the death penalty after a 17-year hiatus in July. Since then, America has killed seven inmates. The DOJ also plans to kill the first woman on death row in 30 years. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo became the highest-ranking U.S. official to visit an Israeli settlement in the occupied West Bank. Pompeo also declared that Trump now views the international campaign to boycott, divest, and impose sanctions, known as BDS, on Israel as anti-Semitic. One day after an announcement came that Trump's former aide Omarosa Mangalt Newman had written a negative tell-all memoir, the White House asked the Justice Department to open an investigation into her about a seemingly unrelated paperwork dispute that led to a government lawsuit. Her lawyers are now saying this is a clear case of retaliation. Allies of Trump are now peddling yet another false election theory, claiming that a software company in Barcelona, Spain, CITL, that makes software for local election officials, was raided by the U.S. Army in Frankfurt. CITL does not have an office in Germany. The Allies claimed the Army seized a computer server containing, quote, authentic vote totals for the 2020 election. They claim this undoctored data shows that Trump was not defeated, but instead won in a landslide with 410 electoral votes. This is, of course, not remotely close to being true. Trump continued to claim he has, quote, a very clear and viable path to victory. Pieces are very nicely falling into place. Almost all of Trump's lawsuits have been dismissed. 44% of Americans think we do not have enough information about the vote count to know who won the election. Nearly one-third of Americans believe Joe Biden won only because of voter fraud. These are the Trump Diaries. A Pocket Guide to Hell, a spin-off of the popular reenactment series, debuted this week on Lumpen Radio. On the premiere, Paul DeRica and Elliot Heilman discussed the centennial of women's suffrage and its legacy with the Chicago League of Women voters, Annie Jameson. Pocket Guide to Hell airs every first and third Thursday at 9 a.m. Hi, Anne. How are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Uh, doing well. Um, Anne, I imagine uh, that this is a very busy time of year for the League of Women Voters of Chicago with the general election on November 3rd, just about two weeks away. So we thank you for taking the time to, to talk with us. Um, what, what are you up to these days? Well, so we've got a lot of different things going on right now. Um, obviously, the uh, voter registration deadline for voter registrars has passed. Now we're moving to more briefings to inform the electorate, make sure everyone knows what's on their ballot. Um, IllinoisVoterGuide.org is online. That's done by the State League, but it's a really great resource to find out who's on your ballot, especially here in Cook County where we have like 70 judges to vote on. Um, And that can be really overwhelming. Um, But when you go on there, you can see who is endorsed how people have uh, um, judged the judges, as it were, to retain them. And you can get some really good information through there. So we're moving more to the get-out-the-vote efforts and uh, voter information efforts. 
Have you seen uh, like the numbers of people who are registered? Has that has that gone up? Because we've been hearing that uh, there's a lot more people who are engaged this year. Have you seen that from your end? So I haven't seen specifically um, the voter registration numbers recently. I can tell you that um, at the last Chicago Board of Election meeting, they mentioned that they have 460,000 vote-by-mail applications. Wow. Um, and of those applications, which are way more than they normally see in an election cycle, 125,000 have already been returned. So we're really on track with the mail-in ballots. Well, I mean, it seems like a really kind of daunting task, but I mean, that's sort of, I mean, the mission of, of the League of Women Voters of, of Chicago is to help kind of voters navigate this process and, and, and get their voices mm -hmm. heard. Um, yeah. at, the, at the beginning of this episode, I was talking a little bit about uh, the history behind the League, uh, because, you know, it was in early October when what had been the Chicago Political Equality League uh, formally transformed itself into the Chicago League of Voters. Uh, and as the board president of, of the League of Women Voters of Chicago today, um, looking back a century ago to not only the end of the suffrage movement, but to the creation of the League, and I should point out, you know, this was also around the time when the, the National League of Women Voters formed mm -hmm. as well. Um, like, what do you think are, are, are some of the kind of like lessons or, or legacies of that moment and that, that feel like relevant today? Uh, does that history have something to tell us about kind of where we are as, as voters and, and particularly um, like something to tell uh, women voters and about the important role that they kind of play in this process? Yeah, um, for sure. There's definitely a lot of like legacies and lessons from, from the suffrage movement. And one of them that I think of a lot is that you have to fight for your right to vote. Like, no one's going to hand it to you on a silver platter. Um, and one thing that we think about is a lot of people think suffrage ended in 1920 when women got the right to vote. But that's really not the case. In many instances, the suffrage movement continues today. Um, most women of color didn't gain the right to vote until 1965 when the Voting Rights Amendment was uh, Voting Rights Act was passed. And even today, since some of those key provisions were struck down, we still see voter suppression across the country. Um, it's everything from where you hear about the long polling lines in Georgia and Kentucky, in Wisconsin. Um, so voter suppression and the movement for suffrage is still ongoing. But realistically, so one of my very first memories with my mom taking me to vote. This is a story I love to tell because I was maybe like two and she took me to vote with her and I sat on, at her feet while she filled out her ballot. And then on the way home, like I have this distinct memory of being like in my stroller and she was telling me about how Alice Paul was force-fed in jail because she was on a hunger strike to get women the right to vote. So that's something that has always been really important to me is the fact that I wasn't given the right to vote Women before me and women today fought, fought for my right to vote. And so that's like an important legacy that I carry with me when I go into this fight as well and think about what I can be doing to increase suffrage um, in Illinois and in the country. Have you witnessed a uh, greater sort of awareness of, of the difficulties, uh, potential difficulties of voting, you know, over the past two, three, four years? Uh, for instance, because I imagine that this is something that uh, a lot of times we say, oh, yeah, there's low participation rates, you know, mm -hmm. like there's all these different ways of voting suppression going on. But like it's hard oftentimes to get people to, to kind of get worked up about it, to do, to do something about it. Has that changed this year? 
Yeah, so um, I'm obviously a denizen of Twitter because we're, <laughs> we live in this age of social media. Um, so it's been interesting to see kind of like the national connection. I think we're very lucky in Illinois. So I moved here in 2012 um, for graduate school and ended up staying. I grew up in Michigan. And mm-hmm. Michigan has actually recently done a really good job expanding their voting options. Um, it wasn't until the 2018 election that they had early voting or no reason absentee ballots uh, like we have here in Illinois. So in Illinois, we've been very lucky. This week, we world premiere a tune from local act Tautologic, produced by Ethan Sellers and recorded at Wax Tracks. This is That's What I Hear. Special thanks to August Forte. That the worst is on its way The pain of profits clean appeasement policies The scene is tragic and the politicians play Inside job, the fat men ate their fill. Before we knew it, they stripped the covered man. Guide and dash, let the children pay the bill. believe the kinds of amazing innovations that they have 
in media for young children. Specifically, uh, one, one of my one of my uh, role models, uh, 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 Kenneth Kenneth Braw, uh, who is a professor at the at the New Media New Media Center in uh, in Waltz College, he was working on a specific line of uh, of coloring books, and these coloring books would be able to teach toddlers, I mean, those as young as two and three how to do derivatives just by coloring in a coloring book this child would be able to do a basic and even some very advanced derivatives well it's it's absolutely incredible what the young developing mind is capable of internalizing if you provide it in the right format um we at over here at the spirit science institute um we work with a lot of children and and it, with a few simple pokes and prods and regiments um, pharmacological regimens, mm -hmm. you can induce incredible things in young people. Oh, don't I know? What What are some of What are some of those things you've induced, uh, Rowan? Well, we primarily look at children as an excellent sort of a um, uh, an antenna, if you will, mm. with regards to certain energies that are harder to pick up. Um, with actual antennas or adults. Um, right. They're very instrumental, specifically with a lot of the work we deal with regards to entities. They're really? very receptive to entities, and there's some incredible work with sort of bringing entities into these these children as one would bring a signal into a radio sure. and being able to make contact and um, do various queries yeah, in so, that manner. Sort of like how the, how the young ear maybe is more capable of picking, picking them higher frequencies. Perhaps the young eye is not, is not desensitized to those... Uh, uh, to those uh, to those sorts of energies young children have not had a chance for their pineal glands to calcify so um, Yes, very very much. So there is a biological factor there. Absolutely. Excellent Broadcast every Sunday 8 to 9 p.m. The Lumpen Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago the community radio of the future the Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen radio sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.